Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. In your face! there from his first album Soft and Wet for After For You and In Your Face on 3CR with James and MV. MV we have an array of guests kicking off in a few seconds with Chris Limo from the Victorian African Health Action Network talking about the importance of Australia's African communities in combating HIV. We'll also be talking to the wonderful Jane Green from the Vixen Collective at 420 about the campaign for decriminalisation of sex work here in Victoria on the verge of the state election as Victorians go to the polls tomorrow if they haven't already voted. At 4.30, we'll be talking to Max Niggle from Living Positive Victoria. He coordinates their Speakers Bureau. He'll be talking about World AIDS Day events, as will Heather M, who joins us at 4.50. She is from Positive Women Victoria, the peak organisation for women living with HIV in this state. She'll be talking about World AIDS Day and living with HIV as well, so it's action-packed. On the line, we have Dr. Chris Lemo from the Victorian Health, uh, Victorian African Health Action Network. Chris, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me on. It's great to talk to you. Tell us about the importance of Australia's African community in HIV prevention. Okay, so um, there's uh, about 1% of Australians are born in Africa. And um, as you know, Africa itself in the continent has been heavily affected by HIV over the last few decades. And um, people who are living in Australia from an African background have not been untouched by this. So um, there have been people who have been diagnosed here with HIV. And of course, a lot of people have got relatives or family um, overseas who have been affected by HIV. So it is something that should be, you know, what it is important. One of the interesting things is though, um, when people come to Australia, they sometimes feel that whatever problems that, you know, were um, in the countries of origin have been left behind. And so when um, people came to Australia, a lot of people feel that, you know, there's no HIV in Australia, and particularly not necessarily HIV in African uh, communities in Australia. Um, but of course, as part of the population here, you know, the same sort of thing can happen as, as um, to anybody else. So um, I, I did some research a few years ago um, with African communities in Victoria, and one of the really interesting things was how much um, surprise there was that some people had that was HIV in Australia amongst African Australians. And yet, on the other side of the fence, from the um, you know public health point of view, um, there were concerns because the rate of diagnosis amongst African-born people was higher than in Australian-born people. That was mainly people who already had HIV who migrated here, but it also included some people who acquired HIV in Australia. Um, and although the actual number of people was small, the rate was higher, so there was public health interest. But the really important thing was that the stigma and um, the uh, isolation that people faced was quite intense. From people, African Australians who were diagnosed living with HIV in Australia were really facing a lot of stigma from communities, but also outside there was racism associated with HIV. And yet at the same time, there was a you know, really intense um, lived experience and um, there was a lot of expertise that was gained in the African context. So where you know, it's something that just had to be faced as part of the general health um, issues there. But 
the same time, there was this disconnect in Australian public health messaging that people were being, you know, treated as if they knew nothing, as if they had to have everything spelled out for them. And um, also a lot of the messages around prevention weren't really including people from African backgrounds in the, you know, advertising public health um, messaging or the, the, you know, the posters and uh, things that people would see in their everyday life. So you, on, you had this sort of contradiction. On the one hand, people were feeling that they'd left it behind in Africa um, and uh, nothing about HIV prevention in Australia was really aimed at them. And yet, on the other hand, there was this sort of concern among public health um, people that there was a problem. And then, of course, you get some you know, racist media that was sort of labelling people as vectors of disease and so on. And so this cluster of, of issues was you know, quite complicated. Those barriers that you just mentioned, that must make it incredibly difficult for African Australians living with HIV to get the support they need, especially peer support. Yeah, it really, it really is. Thankfully, that's, that's improved over the last few years. There have been people, um, African Australians and other, other people who have been working very hard on this for the last few years, working with um, organisations that support people living with HIV um, and also working with health services and working in policy. So people have been trying to... Um, to sort of cut through this complex of, of, of issues um, so that people who are living with HIV can be supported, live good, healthy, happy lives, um, and also people who have not got HIV can take steps to protect themselves. So have you found, Chris, that the recent demonisation of African communities by Peter Dutton has actually made it harder to get information out there to African people or to actually uh, enable African people to come forward and get tested for HIV or to, to come out as living with HIV? I mean, it, it kind of helped. Um, I, I'm not sure that it has had a direct impact. I'm sure it has not helped. I mean, it, at the moment, it seems to be more of a sort of a law and order, tough on crime tone to the... Well, I was going to say propaganda. It is propaganda. So that sort of messaging is more about um, crime and, um, and violence. In the past, it has been around disease, but it's that same sort of labelling people as different and a problem uh, and attaching whatever the current buzzword is to those people and demonising them. So, I mean, that, that's something that it hasn't specifically been addressed with, um, or been raised with HIV recently. Given the current climate, it could easily, again, um, until that sort of stereotyping and labelling strategy has been sort of ditched from political parties, um, you know, repertoire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us about the work of the Victorian African Health Action Network. I mean, it's a big task. I mean, African communities are not are not homogeneous. You've got people from different cultural and language backgrounds. It must be a big job. It is hard to know where to start. So um, we're starting small and starting with the people. So, you know, HIV is just one of the things that people need to deal with in African communities. So like everybody else, the main issues are around, you know, housing, job, education for your kids and financial, you know, security. Then there's migration issues and so on. Health is usually not on the top of the list of things to do for people who, who are migrating because there's a whole lot of other things that, you know, have to deal with. And HIV is not on the top of the health list. So mm. the first thing we need to do is actually get people to recognise that it is something that people, you know, from African backgrounds, need to put on the list of things to think about in Australia. What issues and would you then, say are on the top of the list? I imagine housing is probably right up there, yeah? Yeah, housing, employment and education um, would be right up there. At the moment, there's you know, also there's the migration issues and, and the uh, racist media um, and political strategy. Um, but I think you know, housing and employment is 
the two main ones. Health, health is not something people really think about until they're sick, as a rule. And that's not, you know, just limited to African communities. That's everybody, everybody, really. But it's alarming, um, isn't it, when the health issue is HIV. Yeah. If someone's got HIV and they don't deal with it until they get sick, that's, that means they're that's far right. down the track in terms of, you know, what treatments can do. That's right. And late diagnosis is an issue. And, and one of the things that is, has come through very strongly, and it's, uh, it's been consistent over many years now, is that people who don't fall into that sort of stereotypical risk group generally get, you know, have a higher risk of getting diagnosed late when there's already been some damage to their health and they've not had the benefit of, of the treatment, you know, early before, you know, it damages the immune system too much to an extent. So, you know, uh, late diagnosis is certainly one of the main issues that we have to face as African Australians. Um, along with uh, other migrant groups um, and people who are exposed through heterosexual sex. So they're the groups that are typically diagnosed later. Um, and, you know, for example, over half of the people who were born in sub saharan Africa in the last five years were diagnosed late. So that means they missed out on the opportunity to get early treatment, stop some damage to their health, and also missed the opportunity to change what they do to prevent exposure to sexual partners as well. Mm. Um, so that's also both, both prevention and personal health are improved by a timely diagnosis. And the first step in timely diagnosis is raising awareness that it's something that's worth looking at and thinking about and getting tested for. How difficult is it to reach African men who have sex with men, particularly uh, if they have female partners? Very hard. So unfortunately, there's intense homophobia uh, in many parts of Africa, and that's often kind of driven by religious establishments. Um, with some influence from the American evangelical movement, I'd have to say. I mean, that's something that over the last probably four, 10 years or so, there's been concerted efforts from some um, American evangelical movements to get African countries to institute really homophobic laws that um, you know, basically persecute um, men who have sex with men um, and you know, other people who are not sort of fitting the, the, the uh, heterosexual, you know, official sanctioned um, sexuality, um, with the result that people have been, you know, beaten, murdered, uh, forced from their countries. And, you know, that legacy still follows people in the diaspora. Um, so there are, of course, gay men who are African. Every culture is a spectrum of sexuality. But unfortunately, there's been a legacy of homophobia, which a lot of it is to do with the legal systems that were imposed by the British um, Empire when it was sort of in power. Um, a lot of those laws, just like in India, a lot of those laws are colonial laws. But, of course, they've leaked into the, um, into the culture. I'm really happy, though, in the last, I think, two or three years particularly, amongst um, especially young African-Australians, uh, there's been a lot more openness in people's minds around the spectrum of sexuality and sexual orientation. And you know, in, during that unfortunate plebiscite that we all had to go through, there was, I was really happy to see, particularly online, there were a lot of mainly younger, but not only younger, African-Australians who were engaging with their peers and with their older um, you know, relatives and friends um, and saying, look, you know, we really should move on and be more open. And that's actually in keeping with uh, you know, the spectrum of, of sexuality in culture that was um, you know, pre-colonial times. I mean, there are many instances of... You know, just like in India, there's the hijra culture. Um, there are, you know, examples in Africa of, of um, people who are accepted at a place in society who are not, you know, strictly heterosexual. And that's something that is being discussed more, I think, both in Africa and on the 
having an event in Footscray VU Metro Uni, um, Community Forum and HIV World AIDS Day, so please come along. That's fantastic. And if people want to contact your organisation or go to your website and get more information about that, can you give us an address? Yes, so it's www.vahan.com.au, so V-A-H-A-N.com.au, and uh, can email at info at vahan.com.au. Awesome stuff. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Dr. Chris Limo there from the Victorian African Health Action Network. It's 16 after four. You're on Interface on 3CR with James and MV, and here's Madonna. You are indeed in your face, in fact, with James and MV. We're joined in the studio by Jane Green from the Vixen Collective to talk about the campaign for decriminalisation of sex work in Victoria in the final throngs of the Victorian election campaign. Jane, you must be exhausted. You've been running on caffeine and nicotine. Pretty much. Um, it's been a long and tumultuous process for workers, um, which sort of started in September last year when uh, Kathleen Maltzum was pre-selected for Richmond. Um, and look, sex workers have spent 20 years protesting a really dangerous and harmful candidates. So it's been a long journey for us and many things have happened. Have you spoken to Kathleen Maltzahn in recent times during the campaign, for example, at some of your events? Yeah, absolutely. And and look, um, we have protested, I think, uh, 21 times. Um, And when I say we, sex workers, um, Vixen has organised, I think, three or four protests. But it's been really a grassroots reaction from our community to something that is deeply harmful and dangerous to us. Kathleen has spoken to us. Um, What did she say? um, Well, uh, we actually tweeted a quote from her on Vixen's Twitter um, last night because she's changed her position since her pre-selection. She's held three different positions about how she would um, vote in regard to sex work and sex workers' rights. And so sex workers wanted to speak to her about that and find out where she stands. And sex workers asked her after her latest backflip where she said she would comply with Green's policy. Which what, is decriminalisation, yeah? It is. Um, uh, they asked her what she actually personally Uh, felt what her personal stand was despite that statement and she said that she still believes in the Nordic model in sex work criminalisation and she quote believes there's real strength in it so I think our community finds that really disquieting um, that a candidate who holds those harmful views would potentially be elected and particularly that the Victorian Greens would see it appropriate to pre-select her and run her as a candidate. A lot of negative characteristics of the Nordic model tell us which the worst ones are tell us about them. Well, look, I mean, I haven't worked under the Swedish model or the so-called Nordic model. Um, I have worked under criminalisation. I worked 10 years under criminalisation before I came to this country. But, I mean, what uh, Swedish sex workers and sex workers who've had that model applied to their work say is that it essentially criminalises their lives and work. It's often marketed by people that um, promote it as criminalising clients. And, look, it does. It criminalises clients of sex workers, but it also criminalises sex workers' lives and work. Um, It makes advertising illegal. Um, Sex workers can't work together. And if they do, they can be charged with pimping each other. It criminalises all third parties. Like their children? um, Yeah, if if you're living with someone, a, a friend's family, a partner or adult children, they've been charged with pimping, with living off the earnings. Um, so it's got a lot of negative consequences for sex workers and it's been shown in recent research out of France to increase sex workers' exposure to violence by 42%. And so that's massive. Um, it very literally harms us. It puts us at risk. 
Victoria has a licensing system for sex work. I know it's very complex, but in a nutshell, how does it work? Well, I mean, it is very complex, and that's an important thing to emphasise. There's more than 250 pages of regulation and legislation relating specifically to sex work in Victoria. And so I think the complexity of the law makes our lives very difficult. It's easy to breach law when you don't know it back to back. As I said, that's a lot of law and regulation to get your head around. But essentially, there are parts of sex work that still remain criminalised, and that's street-based sex work in Victoria. And um, also, if you're working as an independent worker, then you have to register with the government. That's a lifelong record. It's never expunged. If you're working as a brothel-based worker, you have to work in licensed premises. And if you're not, you can be charged for being present in a unlicensed premises. And the whole thing, the licensing system, it's not about our health and safety. It's about controlling us and monitoring us because we're viewed as... Um, people that need that, um, that are a danger to society. And just like any other workers, the regulation of our work should be about promoting our rights, our labour rights, our health and our safety. You mentioned the Greens have um, got a policy of decriminalising sex work. We've got a state election tomorrow. What other political parties have said they would decriminalise sex work? Well, I mean, I've actually been asked a lot by people over the last few weeks and certainly even over the last 12 months about what they should do to, in terms of voting to support sex worker rights. Um, there are uh, three parties that have um, come out and put on their platform that they support the full decriminalisation of sex work. The Victorian Greens, it is part of their state and federal policy platform. Um, the Reason Party, uh, but also Victorian Labor, actually added it to their platform in May this year. So that's really significant. And I think it should be recognised that it is um, globally and nationally and here in Victoria supported by sex workers ourselves, but also by health and human rights bodies as being what best supports us in terms of our work and our safety particularly. You mentioned the Reason Party. Of course, it's headed here in Victoria by Fiona Patton, who's a former sex worker. But uh, she also has a long history with the Eros Foundation that represents the interests of, of brothel owners. Of course, their interests, brothel owners, sometimes conflict with the interests of uh, sex workers. Are you happy with the extent of her support? Well, I, I think any worker recognises that bosses' interests often are very divergent from ours as workers. Um, I know certainly sex workers in the last week or so have raised concerns with comments that Fiona Patton has made in a piece published in 10 Daily um, that people have communicated to us, communicated to Vixen What Collective, kinds of comments? Um, talking about... Um, an explosion of illegal brothels, which, look, that's not reflected in evidence or sex workers' experience, and people find that sort of language stigmatising to our community. Um, and I think the, the key thing that we ask for as sex workers is to be listened to um, so that we can represent the reality of our lives. And so comments like that do cause concern. Um, but I've spoken to Fiona about those, and I know that she's made a commitment to us to sit down and have a discussion about that. Richard Wynne, the planning minister, is running against uh, Kathleen Maltzahn in Richmond. He's a sitting member. Has he met with you? No, I, I haven't had the opportunity to meet with Richard Wynne. And look, people do ask me, both as a spokesperson for a sex worker organisation at a personal level, which party I support. Um, I support parties that promote sex workers' rights and support the full decriminalisation of our work. But it's not just about words. It's about actions. And parties, particularly the Victorian Greens, I can point to, have had that policy for a very long time, but it's about 
doing something about it. It's not enough to talk the talk. They have to walk the walk and actually push those issues and raise that in Parliament and get us where we need to be in terms of decriminalising our work. Have any ALP candidates or sitting members actually met with you? We try and meet broadly across mm. all parties, but also for Vixen, it's a capacity issue. Mm. Um, we're a very busy organisation. We do a lot of direct peer support and peer education, and we are unfunded. We're a volunteer-based organisation, and Victoria is the only state or territory in Australia that doesn't have a funded peer-based service. So we always prioritise working directly with members of our community. I'd certainly say I'd like to speak to more politicians and raise the concerns of my community. Have so. any ALP members or, or candidates actually just you know, emailed you or sent you a Facebook message or anything just saying, look, we're with you, we support you? I'm trying to think now. I don't think so, but look, I'd certainly encourage them to do that and we'll be looking to have some very serious discussions post-election um, regardless of the composition of Parliament to keep promoting sex worker rights and to keep it on the agenda. How would you rate the Liberal Party's performance on the issue of sex work decriminalisation? Very poor. Um, so for people that don't know, in late April at the uh, Liberal Party State Council, they actually passed a motion along with a range of really negative motions about marginalised groups um, to support the Nordic or Swedish model of sex work criminalisation. We had some very serious discussions with members of the Liberal Party about that. Um, and although we were pleased to see that it wasn't taken up by the parliamentary party, it's still something that they need to correct. They need to be supporting what's right for workers. What about community support? There seems to be a significant shift in the attitude towards sex workers in the community. It seems to be a lot more positive. Are you finding that there's less stigma? Obviously, there's still a long way to go. There's a long way to go. Um, I will say that um, I personally have felt as a sex worker more supported in relation to raising these issues in the last 12 months than I've felt probably at any other time. Uh, we've had a lot of allies come out and stand with us. We've been protesting with local members of our community, but with supporters. Um, and also, we've been at Victorian uh, Greens protests raising these issues, and members of the Greens have walked out of events to stand with us. And I think those people need to be acknowledged, that they are raising the issues internally with their party, and we need more of that. Jane Green, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Thank you for all your great work for the community. I know there's lots of LGBTIQ sex workers uh, and lots of allies as well. And uh, good luck tomorrow with uh, the result that you get. And I hope we get decriminalisation in the next term of government. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a great pleasure. It's 4.30 on In Your Face on 3CR with James and MV. And we've got more music. Joni Mitchell there, free man in Paris. It's 4.33, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James and MV. We're joined on the line by Max Nickel from Living Positive Victoria. He is the coordinator of their vastly successful Speakers Bureau and he joins us to have a chat about World AIDS Day 2018, which is on December 1st, but there's some activities happening before then in Melbourne. Welcome, Max, to 3CR. It's great to have you on board again. Thank you very much, James, for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. Max, tell us about the theme for this year's World AIDS Day. So, yes, this year's theme is Everybody Counts, and uh, it is one that we, the Australian um, Department of Health, uh, adopted from the World Health Organisation. Uh, this is primarily because uh, there's still a perception that HIV only affects gay men in Australia. Um, however, we know that there are increasing diagnoses in the heterosexual population. 
So uh, the other point too is that when we're talking about everybody count, that also includes people who are ageing. Absolutely. And of course, ageing and HIV, it kind of goes together, doesn't it? Uh, Is that because it's just the way the virus affects the body, even even with the treatments? Uh, To a degree, uh, it it can be a combination of both uh, being treated long-term for HIV. Mm. Some of the earlier drugs um, impacted upon us in, in very different ways to what the drugs do nowadays. And, of course, HIV still lurks within the body, even though it's really well controlled by the medication. So what we're seeing is this sort of greater um, amount of uh, earlier diagnoses of things such as uh, you know, kidney disease, diabetes, blood pressure, uh, you know, lipids, um, elevated uh, cholesterol, for example. And you know, people having hip replacements, knee replacements, a lot earlier than the general population. Mm. Max, tell us about some of the events happening uh, for World AIDS Day. I know that there's some really great community forums happening, for example. Yes, look, uh, Living Positive Victoria and uh, the Burnett Institute and Thorn Harbour Health are hosting the uh, official community launch of World AIDS Day on uh, Friday the 30th uh, at um, the Alfred's AMREP Theatre at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, We subsequently, after the community morning tea, will be having a community forum. And uh, that is going to be about living and ageing with HIV and how we're rising to that challenge. Uh, After that, we have our luncheon um, uh, for everybody that's there. And uh, we then move into the Burnett's M Hive Symposium, which is about young researchers and scientists who are working in the area of HIV. Uh, And in particular this year, they're focusing on HIV and comorbidities as people age. Wow. So explain that a little bit to our listeners. So when I mentioned all of those conditions um, uh, that, that seem to be uh, impacting us earlier than the general population, comorbidities is effectively a collection of other illnesses associated with your primary health condition. And in this case, that's living long-term with HIV and ageing with HIV. You are the coordinator of the incredibly successful uh, People Living with HIV AIDS Speakers Bureau, which is a really great program at Living Positive Victoria. Tell us how that works. What does that involve? Well, it's uh, people who are living with HIV, no matter what their gender, sexuality, um, who decide that they want to do something and give back to the community and educate the broader community about living with HIV, especially what it's like to live with HIV in 2018. So we have speakers that go back uh, who've been with us for nearly 30 years and more recently a lot of younger speakers have joined us and increasingly more women are joining us as a Speakers Bureau. So primarily our work is in schools and universities but every other um, organisation that asks for speakers, it's about the lived experience um, and uh, of course uh, that's crucial for people to to start to destigmatise HIV in their thinking and to understand that HIV can affect anybody. Do you find that because it shows the human face of living with HIV that that's a real kind of, you know, impetus for people overcoming their, their fears and their stigmas and their, and their prejudice towards people living with the virus? Uh, absolutely uh, the case and it is that human face and this would also translate across the broader community into people from um, you know, asylum seekers for example where people are fearful, people are still fearful of living, people living with HIV, people are fearful of uh, uh, minority groups, 
Um, and yet, once they meet people and start to mingle, they really start to understand that we are all human beings and we are all really good human beings, except for a tiny, tiny minority. Absolutely. Now, what are some of the organisations who have requested a speaker that have surprised you, like, you know, country women associations, for example? Like, you know, what were some of the more kind of out there organisations that have asked for a speaker? Uh, you put me on the spot there. Oh, really? CWA. Yeah, CWA had a huge uh, focus on HIV about two or eight years ago. Great. And their president at the time wanted speakers coming in to speak to as many branches as possible. Uh, I, look, I think when we get uh, responses from corporate organisations, uh, and one this year is from Mercer Health, uh, Mercer, um, the company which specialises in superannuation and um, you know wealth management, um, big corporation, um, and they've requested a positive speaker this year. Fantastic. Now, Max, you've also been to Papua New Guinea and you've done some training. Tell us about that. Uh, look, that started in 2004, and I've been there several times uh, working on, primarily was assessing whether in remote um, provinces, whether or not their daycare centres could roll out HIV testing and um, treatments. And this was as part of a project that was being done by the National Association of People Living with HIV at the time um, to assess what Australia could do to assist them to develop that capacity. Uh, other than that, I've worked over there training um, positive speakers with uh, Dr Susan Paxton, one of our long-term members, um, and also one of the speakers at World AIDS Day launch today. Fantastic. Um, and beyond that was also training um, guys and women who are sex workers, um, um, uh, identify as um, trans people, and... Um, some who identify as men having sex with men, and that was quite remarkable in seeing their approach to speaking to their communities. I also read that you went to Vienna and did some training. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, that was part of the uh, World AIDS Conference that was held over there. Uh, now you're going to put me on the spot here. I think it was 2010. Um, it's a massive conference that's held every two years in different locations around the world. And uh, that was where I was working with Susan Paxton again um, in delivering workshops to people uh, living with HIV from around the world. You, of course, have a long history in HIV education and activism. When did you actually start being an activist and educator in the field? I'd go right back to when I was diagnosed in 1987. Wow. And um, I was, uh, I guess, uh, one of these people who thought, I don't want to disclose and of course it was a very, very different time back then. So my activism really was from a very individual advocate point of view, looking after myself and my mm. partner who died of AIDS in 1995. But really once I commenced work with what is now Living Positive Victoria 20 years ago, that's when I really started to um, be very much more open around my status but, and thereby providing some leadership to others who might feel, may feel more um, uh, less able to, to get up there and speak about being positive. Mm. The epidemic has certainly changed a lot. I mean, we don't have, you know, gay newspapers anymore. But when we did, of course, you know, you couldn't pick them up without going through the pages and seeing, you know, obituaries. Now it's all changed, hasn't it? And I imagine, you know, I mean, that's a fantastic thing, but it also means that perhaps uh, people know less about HIV and also it means that, you know, that stigma, of course, is still there, isn't it? Yes. Look, the, 
the uh, epidemic has changed dramatically and I think we have to um, pause and remember and what we are doing with the launch and the forum um, on the 30th of November is to think about people living long term. What are the ramifications of living long term and how are they going to deal with going into aged care environments, whether it's at home or in residential care? How are they going to go and disclosing their status again, or if at all, if they've ever done it before? So I, I think uh, we still have a long way to go in challenging um, the perceptions of stigma. And yes, because it is a chronic manageable health condition now, uh, it is not out there in the general public as much, and thereby they think that HIV has gone away and it doesn't affect them. Mm, absolutely. Max, we're out of time, but just give us some contact details so people can get some information about those wonderful community events happening for World AIDS Day. Sure. So they just need to go onto our website, livingpositivevictoria.org.au, and they will see the events page there, which will take them to the links of all of the events also like to mention the Positive Living Centre World AIDS Day Memorial on the Saturday, the 1st of um, December, and that's being held at in Commercial Road in South Yarra, and everybody's welcome there. Max Niggle from Living Positive Victoria, thank you so much for chatting. It's always great to hear you on 3CR. Thank you. Thanks so much, James. Max Niggle there. It's a quarter to five. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James and MV and his whole... Continuing our World AIDS Day theme, Heather M is from Positive Women Victoria. They are the peak organisation for women living with HIV in this state. And Heather is their health promotions officer. Welcome to 3CR, Heather. Thank you. Thank you for having me this afternoon. It's a great pleasure. So tell us about the health promotion work that you do. Actually, I have to correct you. It's peer engagement coordinator. Ah, okay. Is the one who does health promotion. I've been talking to you both all week. <laughs> well, not all week, but today anyway. So look, um, tell us about the importance of peer support for women living with HIV. Um, I think uh, peer support provides that uh, opportunity and space for women living with HIV, you know, just to... Um, get to know other women, get the support they need, and for them not to feel like they're the only women or women living with HIV in Australia. Because often women, when they get a diagnosis, they feel like they're the only ones. So we are there to provide the support and let them know they're not alone. Women like myself and other women that I support, we're there for these women. 
I imagine isolation is a huge issue for a lot of women yeah. living with HIV and you must come across women who say, I've never spoken to another woman living with HIV before. Yes, that is a very common theme. Uh, a lot of women are like, I thought I was the only one. How can this happen to me? And after they've received their diagnosis, often, you know, those feelings of, of isolation, they can be, they're so huge. So peer support is very important for just, you know, making sure they're okay and linking them up with the right health services, um, support groups with other women. So peer support is very important. I imagine without peer support, it must be very difficult for a lot of women living with HIV to actually tell, you know, their friends, their family uh, about about their diagnosis, which means that that just compounds the isolation. Yes, it does, because they don't know how to start the conversation. Because uh, women, often women that come to us, they, you know, they're in heterosexual relationships and different cultural backgrounds or the discussion around HIV or gender and sexuality, they're not common discussions. Mm. So they, we are there to offer support on disclosure and relationships, um, you know, where to seek treatment, and mental health is a big, big issue. So everything is interlinked from isolation, mental health, disclosure, discrimination, internal and external stigma. Mm. I guess the peer support really helps women to work through all of those issues as yeah. well. Let's talk for a moment about, about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Uh, what are some of the challenges there with engaging with them? There, I think it's the talk in, in the sector. It, it, it's a big challenge mm. uh, because often these women, um, they are geographically isolated, so they leave you know, not in inner Melbourne. So the issue of access is a big problem. There's language barriers. And the fact that they come from a different culture just provides another layer of disadvantage for these women. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging. And women from other cultures, like I've just mentioned before, are, are the cultural backgrounds, having a discussion about HIV is often viewed with so much... So stigma. Stigma, internal and external. So they're mm. hugely isolated. They, so I think organisations like Positive Women, LPV, everyone in the sector, we provide them with that support they need mm. and link them with other women from the same background if they are comfortable doing so. Living with HIV must be hugely challenging for women who have children. I mean, how do women deal with that? That must be a huge kind of um, obstacle. Yeah, it's a big thing. It's a big thing. Um, I, I am a mum, and often uh, I think the women that I that I work with or that I support or have come I've come across in this line of work, disclosure is a big thing. When do I disclose to my child? When is it the right time? Do I disclose? So, yeah, so it, it's challenging and you're often thinking about someone else, you know, a child. And some women, they have to deal with disclosing to their children about their children's status. Some women have children who are positive, so disclosing to those children that they are positive. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, it does, Absolutely. 
And there also must be huge challenges around positive women and childbirth as well. I mean, you mentioned having positive children, so there's perinatal transmission. And I guess there's the treatments issue that impacts on top of that as well. What are some of the main uh, treatment issues for women who are pregnant uh, who are also HIV positive? Um, how, How do you kind of deal with that? Well, Australia has done an ama- amazing work in uh, in the HIV space and, you know, women and giving birth. So rarely women here have kids who are positive, you know, if they've been followed up and if they know their status or if they find out when they're pregnant, there's good care. But there are a small number of women who are unfortunate that it didn't happen for them or they came from overseas and they had positive children. So the issues around there that I've seen in this line of work is these women, especially the women with the children that are positive, is the adherence to treatment with their children. So a woman will be like, oh, my child doesn't understand why they have to take treatment. So peer support and some of the work that we do, we support these women so they have you know, the resilience to keep going and some coping strategies and how they can support themselves and their families. I don't know if I've answered your question. No, you certainly have. I I was going to say all roads kind of lead to peer support, don't they, and peer engagement and connecting people. Yes, and connecting people. And it's all interlinked from, you know, social isolation, stigma. I think the biggest thing that, that we fighting is the stigma and discrimination that people feel internally and experience externally that limits, you know, that limits them as people living with HIV. And the fear around disclosure causes social isolation, mental health issues. It's all stigma. Heather, we're almost out of time, but it is World AIDS Day on the 1st of December. Are there any events that you in particular would recommend that people go to, particularly women living with HIV or their friends or family? Uh, I would say to women living with HIV and everyone in general, I think the community forum on living and ageing with HIV would be very useful to women and because we're all ageing, you know, living with HIV mm. or and we need to know what's happening and their challenges as you get older living with HIV. What is the treatment doing to your body? Do you have to change treatments and other health challenges that come as you age? So I think this World AIDS Day theme is very important more or less, you know, to women. Mm. And, everybody um, counts. Be, yeah, everybody counts. And we'll have our, you know, our champions, people who have lived before us who were leading the way. So... Um, I would encourage everyone, you know, to attend all sessions, but if they can, the community forum. Absolutely. And we'll put those details up on our website. Heather, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your great work at Positive Women Victoria. It really is wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR today. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Cheers. Heather M there, she's the Peer Engagement Officer for Positive Women. Victoria, the peak body for women living with HIV in this state. MV, we're out of here. Yes, and I want to say thank you to all our guests and all the people that helped us organise our guests, including Hope Mathombo and Natalie Brown. Awesome, we're out of here. Jacob's up next with a Friday Rave. Bye, everyone.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.